You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Today I want to talk to you about something that I think is a very important question, and it's something that's come up especially in the Western world, and maybe I should say in particular in the United States. In the last few years, there have been many Christian believers in the United States who have felt that they are being persecuted or that persecution is beginning against Christians. They've thought that uh, when they go to the store and nobody says Merry Christmas anymore, they only say Happy Holidays, that that's a form of persecution or they think that especially with the recent changes that society has had to take in light of a global pandemic or in response to a global pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, that many of the things that the government, either on a state level or local level, have done have amounted to persecution. Now, there's been some Christians who have felt that this has been persecution when the government says, well, you can't meet or you can only meet under these circumstances, or if you meet, it can only be this many people, or if you meet, you can't worship, you can't sing in a particular way, and on and on. There have been other believers who have responded to those expressions of a sense of persecution by saying, basically, oh, don't be a baby. You're not being persecuted. Uh, talk to people in other parts of the world, talk to believers in North Korea, talk to certain believers in China or uh, live in the Muslim world. They're being persecuted. You're not being persecuted. So I I think it's worth it for us to examine the question, and I'll at least give you my perspective on this. Are Christians really being persecuted? And I want to talk about it in terms of this. I want to give you 10 persecution myths and misunderstandings to sort of frame the larger question in principle. So here we go. 10 persecution myths and misunderstandings. Myth number one, it's only persecution when people are getting killed. Now, I believe that's a myth. By the way, we'll list all of these myths in the description to the video, just so you can have a list of the 10 if you're interested in that. But please notice, the first myth is simply this. It's only persecution when people are getting killed. Now, through the centuries, probably millions of Christians, not probably, certainly millions of Christians have been murdered for being Christians. Now, if a Christian is murdered, but it's uh, in warfare, it's because there's been a robbery, it's because of any number of other reasons. We're not talking about Christians just being murdered, we're talking about Christians being murdered because they were Christians, because they belonged to that group or class of people known as Christians. Millions of Christians have been murdered through the centuries for being Christians. But the persecution didn't only count when they were being murdered. I want you to understand there are many examples in the New Testament of believers being persecuted but not killed. Uh, They were forced to be refugees. Mary and Joseph, when they had to flee Judea and go to Egypt, I believe they were being persecuted. Uh, When the believers had to flee Jerusalem and spread all around the other cities of the Roman Empire that they could reach, it was because they were being persecuted. 
when they were being beaten, such as Paul was beaten, when they were being deprived of their rights, such as Paul was deprived of rights, when they faced economic penalties and fines, such as happened in the book of Acts. When those things happened, those were persecution episodes. Now, when their families disowned them, both in Bible times and since, when their families disowned them because they were Christians, that was persecution. I would go further and say this, when their children were denied admission to the university because they were Christians, that was persecution. And friends, you need to realize that happens in many parts of the world today. Now, you're not being killed if your child is denied admission to the university, but it is persecution nevertheless. When people lose their jobs because they're Christians, that's persecution. When people have had to pay special taxes because they were Christians, that's persecution. You see, when it comes to persecution, and we can say this both biblically and historically, actual martyrdom is like the tip of the iceberg. It's the part everybody notices, but there's much, much more that people overlook. And I would even go so far as to say this, is even accounting for the literally millions of Christians who have been martyred through the centuries, far more Christians have been persecuted in other ways than actually being killed. So that's a myth to say that it only counts as persecution if people are getting killed, we should put that thought out of our mind. Here's myth number two. As long as someone else is persecuted worse, we shouldn't complain. And again, this thought comes up in the response of many people. They say, well, if you think that you're being persecuted, you should talk to believers in North Korea, or you should talk to believers today in certain parts of Africa, where it seems we get reports almost every week of the slaughter of believers in places like this around the world. And the thinking is just simply this, is that you shouldn't complain about persecution as long as just last week, 20 believers in Africa were murdered for being Christians. Now, it is true that we never want to imagine persecution when it doesn't exist, or we don't want to exaggerate whatever persecution we face. If the culture rejects the idea of Merry Christmas and chooses to say Happy Holidays instead, you might say that's persecution, but if it is, it's persecution in a small way. It's not the same as people being murdered. So we don't want to imagine persecution where it doesn't exist. We don't want to exaggerate whatever persecution we may face. And it's also true that we are full of care and sympathy for our brothers and sisters around the world who face much worse persecution. Our hearts go out to embattled places around the earth where Christians are literally being murdered and having other things done against them as far as violence, as far as outward, uh, plain persecution. I, I think we have a great sympathy for our brothers and sisters, and we want to be very real about what's happening to them. But let me just say this. The thinking 
as long as someone else is being persecuted worse, we shouldn't complain. The thinking is absurd. Can you imagine saying this to someone whose pastor was murdered or imprisoned, saying this, well, don't complain. In Africa, 20 pastors were murdered last week. So you shouldn't complain just because your pastor was murdered. That's only one. It was 20 uh, in Africa last week. Do you see how strange that is? Listen, again, we don't want to imagine persecution when it doesn't exist. We don't want to exaggerate whatever persecution we face. But to say just because people are being persecuted worse in another part of the world, well, then whatever happens to you doesn't count. That's a strange and I would say even an absurd way to think. Here's myth number three. Persecution has to be violent to be real persecution. Now, again, that's a myth. Hebrews chapter 12, verse four, describes early Christians who had not yet shed blood in their resistance to a sinful society, yet they were still being persecuted. So in other words, these were Christians in the early church. They were being persecuted, but they had not yet shed blood. Persecution does not have to be violent to be real. Now, when governments or other forces in society carry out laws, policies, or pressures that will hinder the expression or growth of Christianity, that's persecution. Again, let me read you my definition of persecution. It's just this. When governments or other forces in society, persecution can happen by mobs as much as it can happen by governments. But when persecution, persecution is this, when governments or other forces in society carry out laws, policies, or pressures that will hinder the expression or the growth of Christianity, that's persecution. Now, it might be mild persecution or it might be severe persecution. It might be violent persecution or it might be non-violent persecution. But again, we got to get away from this thinking that persecution has to be violent to be real persecution. Now, I want you to understand this as well. The government or the societal force, that could be like a mob, they don't have to claim that that is the purpose of their law, their policy, or their pressure. They might have an entirely different purpose in mind. What matters is not their motivation, but the effect of what they do. I think this is very important to understand. We need to grab this firmly in our minds. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more under another myth that I'll speak about. But governments rarely claim their purpose is to hinder Christianity or its expression. And if you're waiting for that claim before you will say this is real persecution, you'll probably wait forever. I would suppose not one out of a hundred laws, maybe not one out of a thousand laws or policies that have been officially enacted against Christians have expressly said that they were being enacted to be against Christians. 
That's just not how it works in the real world. We need to understand that and we need to not say that they must claim that that is the purpose of their law, their policy, or their pressure. And I also think it's important for us to say that it doesn't really matter in a real sense what their motivation is. Many times we, and I see this right now going on today in the response of churches to laws and policies from governments. I'm speaking particularly of the state government in the state where I live, the state of California. People saying, oh, I know what the motive of the governor is in this law. Can I just say, you don't know what the motive is and it doesn't really matter what their motive is. There are people who do very bad things with good motives. And there are people who sometimes do good things and they have a bad motive for it. We should separate the motive from the effect God will judge them for the motive and to be sure he will. But we need to take a look at what the effect is and just forget about what the motive is so much. Here's myth number four. Persecution has to directly impact everyone before it is real persecution. Now, this is another thing for us to understand, that this has almost never been the situation when Christians are persecuted. Oh, I suppose there's been a few situations when a Christian city was conquered and every single Christian in the city was either murdered or sold into enslavement or exiled or whatever. There's been a few situations like that, but that's not how it usually works. Usually, persecution is sporadic and regional. You know, that's exactly how it was in the first 300 years of Christianity. We, we think of those first 300 years, these years when Christians were persecuted in the Roman Empire. In those first 300 years, it was extremely rare for there to be an empire-wide persecution of Christians. Even when it was supposed to be empire-wide, it depended on the local officials to enforce that. So there was probably never a time when every Christian in the Roman Empire lived under persecution. But persecution would go around to different places, oftentimes depending on the opinions and the whims of the local officials. And it would also become more intense and less intense. We sometimes think that for 300 years, the early church lived under the threat of continual persecution everywhere in the Roman Empire. That's just not true. Now, persecution was real. It was terrible, but it wasn't constant. So we need to get out of mind that persecution has to directly impact everybody or be constant for it to be real persecution. That's just not how persecution works. Here's myth number five. I think this is an important one. Myth number five. Persecutors openly hate Jesus Christ and Christianity. That's just not true. Did you know that some persecutors claim to be Christians? Or some persecutors have nothing personal against Christianity? And there's a whole nother group of persecutors who simply don't 
care about what Christians believe. They don't care. They're just persecuting everybody who won't go along with their program, whether they're a government or whether they're a mob. Not going along with their program is the crime. They don't care if you're a Christian or not. Persecution was and is normally done for the claimed greater good of society. I'm going to say that again. Persecution was and is normally done for the claimed greater good of society. Again, if you're waiting for persecutors to say, we hate Jesus Christ and we hate Christianity, therefore we're going to attack churches the best we can, there have been a few occasions through history where that's happened. Mostly, it's not the case. Now, let me give you another example of this from the persecution that happened in the first 300 years of Christianity in the Roman Empire. Let me explain to you how often, again, this isn't a universal, but how often persecution worked in the Roman Empire in the first 300 years of Christianity. Out of a display of loyalty to the empire and to the Caesar who ruled over the empire, every Roman resident was required to burn a pinch of incense before a little statue or bust of the Caesar, a little altar that would be right in front of a statue or a bust of the Caesar. And as they sprinkled that incense upon that little altar, that little thing of flaming coals, they were supposed to say, Caesar is Lord. You'd go into a little room, maybe a tent, maybe a temple, who knows? Uh, you would go, there'd be a Roman official there at the table. Okay, next. What's your name? Okay, got your name. Okay, do the thing. Uh, Caesar is Lord. You'd burn the incense on that little altar of coals. The fragrance would go up. The uh, Roman official would stamp some kind of document, give it to you and go, next. Y you see, th that's how this persecution was often, not always, expressed against Christians. Remember, now, there were Christians who simply refused and said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to burn a pinch of incense which had associations with sacrifice. It wasn't an animal sacrifice, but it was associated with a sacrifice. And of course, saying Caesar is Lord. Now, there were some people who interpreted that as just simply saying uh, Caesar is a ruler. But, but Christians, at least most of them, understood, no, Lord is a title that belongs to Jesus Christ alone, and they refused to do it. I want you to understand this. When that was required of Christians, and Christians refused, government officials just said, who cares? I don't care if you want to worship Jesus in your own time. I don't care. But you just have to express your loyalty to the government by submitting to this little ceremony and expressing that the government is Lord, Caesar is Lord. And, and if you just do that, just go through the ceremony. I'll stamp your certificate. You can go on your way. And then if you want to worship Jesus all the rest of the week, I don't care. The, the Romans would think something like this. 
We worship all kinds of gods. If you want to worship Jesus right alongside with that, do it. No, what bothered the Romans was not that Christians worship Jesus, but that Christians would worship Jesus alone. The Romans often, I'm not saying this was always the case, but often they expressed no open hatred of Jesus Christ and Christians. They just said, get along. We're just asking you to be good citizens of the Roman Empire. So say Caesar is Lord, burn your pinch of incense. I'll give you your certificate. You can go your way. But Christians would often refuse. I'll tell you something else that government officials would often do. They would say, okay, look, I'll just give you the certificate. You don't have to say it. You don't have to burn the pinch of incense. I'll give you the certificate. Or maybe you could buy the certificate. Would that be okay for Christians to do? Well, again, most every Christian said, no way. But I just want you to understand, most Roman officials didn't care what Christians believed. They just needed them to do the thing. For the Roman official, it was a matter of public safety, public order, the public good. We need to unify the culture around this. So we'll unify them around this, the expression that Caesar is Lord. The gods are angry because we haven't been honoring them. Let's honor them with these little ceremonies. We need to bring together the culture, bring together the society. And it's the Christians who won't go along with us. This was entirely the mentality through much of the persecution against Christians in the Roman world. Again, it, it was... 300 years, it was varied, so we can't make absolute statements that it was such and such way all the time. But you get the idea. We should not wait for persecutors to openly declare hatred against Jesus Christ and Christianity to believe that what they are doing is actually persecution. They, like the Roman government before them, back in the first few centuries of the church, they may be saying we are only acting in public order, the public good out of public safety. Here's myth number six. Christians are persecuted without reason. That's the way we think it is. It's just somehow either the government or the mob just with crazy violence and without any reason, they just start persecuting Christians. No, I want you to understand this. Almost always reasons are given and the people who make the reasons or give the reasons, they think they're good reasons. Again, rarely, as I discussed back in myth number five, rarely is it said we hate Christians, so we want to hinder Christianity. That's rarely the case. But the Muslim who murders Christians today, the Muslims who are murdering Christians today in Africa and in other places in the world, they are claiming a good reason to do it. They think it honors Allah for them to do it. They think it advances the purposes and the glory of Islam for them to do it. They're claiming a good reason. And might I say this, to our embarrassment as Christians, because in the past, Christians have persecuted both other Christians and people of other religions or of no religion. 
when Christians have persecuted others, which they should never have done, and which Christianity has repented of and continues to repent of, when they have done it, they have claimed their reasons as well. Matter of fact, it reminds us both of religious persecution today that happens against Christians and religious persecution of the past, including persecution that Christians themselves have done. It makes us think of what Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 2, where he says, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. There are many people who think they are doing good for society. They are even pleasing God by the persecution of Christians. So the Muslim who murders Christians claims a good reason. The communist who murders Christians. And make no mistake about it. Communism is responsible for the murder of countless millions of Christians throughout the 20th century. Many, not all by any means, but many of the hundred million plus that have been killed by communists in the 20th century, many of those were killed because they were Christians who were deemed to be a threat to the communist government. But the communist government claims a good reason for it. And again, in the Roman Empire, they claimed a good reason for persecuting Christians. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, friends, in the Western world, those who persecute Christians and work against them think they are doing good. They earnestly believe that they have good reasons, and oftentimes their reasons will be stated in terms of public health or safety. Now, I want to say, if people are trying to make a direct connection between what I'm saying now and the present COVID-19 crisis and things, I I believe it is the responsibility of every pastor and every leadership team of a congregation to prayerfully before the Lord decide what God wants them to do for the care of their congregation, whether or not they should have services or not have services, whether how they should have services indoors, outdoors, with distancing, without distancing. I think that is up to each individual pastor and leadership team over a congregation. And if a pastor is persuaded that a certain approach is right for them before God, God bless you and do it. But I do see something fascinating in this. I see that in the future, you should be assured that more persecution will come against Christians from a public health angle. It'll go something like this. And believe me, friends, this is not a fantasy. These things are being stated today. They're not being enforced by either the laws or the mob, but the day when this is enforced is not far off. This is what they'll say. What you Christians teach from the Bible is responsible for hatred towards homosexuals and transsexuals. Those homosexuals and transsexuals are being beaten, murdered, and they're committing suicide because of what you Christians claim the Bible teaches. 
for the sake of public safety and public health, you can't teach that anymore. That day is not far off in the United States, at least according to how things appear now. And Christians will have to say, and let me say, there will be many people in the culture who will say, well, it's for the public good. It's for the public safety. It's for public health. I believe that it's biblical to teach that the government has unique powers during a time of plague. If you look up in the book of Leviticus and see how God commanded the priests to deal with leprosy, you'll see that they had the power to quarantine, can I say virtually imprison a person who was suspected, not even confirmed, but suspected of having a contagious disease such as what the Bible calls leprosy, but actually uh, encompasses a broad range of skin diseases. Now, please know that this was done for public safety. God gave unusual rights to the government. In Leviticus, it's expressed through the priest who was something like a public health officer in the Old Testament. God gave them special powers to do that, but they were not unlimited powers. And the idea that the claim to public safety or public health gives government unlimited powers, that's a claim that I believe no Christian should sign on to. Now, again, I do earnestly believe that God will give wisdom to each individual pastor and leadership team of a congregation, how they should meet, when they should meet, under what circumstances, with what distancing, all the rest. That's not a problem at all. My warning has more to do with the future and laying down the groundwork of what will be brought to us in the future than it does for our present moment. I believe that in the present moment, we are faced with a situation where Christians should understand the principles yet can have a genuine freedom to disagree in the present moment. However, I believe there's going to come a time where understanding what's going on will mean that Christians uh, need to have a unified perspective on this. Again, that's looking more down to the future than the present time. All right, here's myth number seven. Christians should silently accept persecution. Now, let me say, first of all, this is partially true. I don't have any doubt that there are certain situations in which Christians should silently accept persecution. They should not make a defense. We have examples of just that in the scriptures. When Jesus was crucified, Oh, the defense he could have made, but he didn't. When Paul accepted a beating and imprisonment in the Philippian jail, he silently accepted persecution. 
There are times when that's the appropriate thing to do. We're under the leading, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That is exactly what God would want believers to do. But that is not a universal prescription for Christians under persecution. So the idea that Christians should always silently accept persecution, that is a myth. You see, the Bible tells us to make a defense for the faith. To speak up for the faith, not just to be silent all the time. And Jesus, in fact, told us that the Holy Spirit would tell us what to say when we are brought before religious and governmental officials. That's in Mark chapter 13, verse 11. He said the Holy Spirit will tell you what you should say. And we have instances where the apostles were brought before uh, religious or governmental tribunals and they were not silent. They spoke up. Matter of fact, Paul, on different occasions, appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen, and he made a defense. And I'll add to this, we not only have all this testimony from the scriptures, but we also have the testimony from church history. Early Christians were vigorous defenders of the faith. They tried to persuade both the officials and the people of the Roman Empire that the accusations made against Christians were, uh, were not wise to make, that they were not true, and that Christians were a blessing to the empire. They were not a problem. No, the early Christian defenders of the faith, the first apologists of the first few centuries of the church, men like Justin Martyr and others, they eloquently wrote to, Christi- to, excuse me, to Roman leaders, and to the people of the Roman Empire saying, you're not doing this right. You should not be persecuted. They stood up and made a defense. So the idea that the Christian thing to do when you're being persecuted is always to just silently accept it and never protest against it, that's not a biblical idea and it's not a historical idea. Here's another myth, myth number eight. Persecution always unites the church. It's not true. You know, especially in the Western world, I would say, it's hard for us to understand persecution. Now, I I only speak of this from having interviewed people who have suffered persecution and by reading widely of those who have suffered persecution. I myself have never lived in it. And I understand that there is a dimension to this that I do not know because I have not personally experienced it. But I'll tell you something. At least I know that I don't know it. I believe that in the Western world, it's hard for us to understand persecution. We don't understand how truly frightening it is. It's common. I I remember hearing this many times throughout my Christian life. Oh, you know what the church needs is some persecution. That'll be good for the church. And I won't deny that in some ways persecution is good for the church, but it is so difficult, oftentimes traumatizing for the church. And one of the ways that persecution can be traumatizing for the church is how divisive it is. You see, when persecution comes against the church, 
almost always when government officials or other people in power in the culture start persecuting the church, there's almost always some people in the church who say, well, listen, what they're doing isn't unreasonable. We can accommodate this. That's been the pattern throughout church history. And persecution divides Christians often, not always, but often. It separates among those who think there is a way to accommodate what the government officials or what the cultural powers demand and those who think there is no godly way to accommodate. Now, I pray that this does not happen in our current situation. But my prayer is even more for the future. Because should more severe persecutions come against Christians in the Western world, there will certainly be that temptation to divide. And then, more than ever, we need to pray that God would give us a true, unified church united around the truth. Here's myth number nine. Persecution never works. And I would put works in scare quotes there. Now, let, let me explain to you what I mean by this. Absolutely, positively, in the long term, Jesus always wins. His promise is true. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Absolutely true. However, in the short term, to our human eye of observation, there are times when persecution works, or at least seems to work. Sometimes Christians renounce the faith. Sometimes Christians are forced to leave an entire region as refugees. If I can say this, one of the great tragedies over the last, let's say, 50 years, 40 or 50 years, is how many Christians have had to flee the Middle East essentially because of persecution. The Christian population of the Middle East used to be much larger than it is now because so many have had to flee because of persecution. Sometimes places and regions that were once dominantly Christian now do not have much of a Christian presence or influence. And sometimes that's been the case for hundreds and hundreds of years. I'll tell you this. It seems, and again, I'm speaking according to the human eye, what we can perceive. It seems that persecution worked. And again, I'm putting that in scare quotes. Persecution worked in North Africa. When you take a look at those nations that comprise North Africa, uh, Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia, more, when you take a look at those nations that encompass North Africa, in the early centuries of the church, those were 
predominantly Christians. And some of the greatest, most influential Christian thinkers came from North Africa. These were deeply Christian areas. Today, they are completely dominated by Islam and Christianity is forgotten or barely a memory in those places. It seems, again, to human observation, that persecution worked there. Now, we thank God that it's not like they're every, like not like that, I should say, everywhere in the world. There's examples of persecution not working. In the Roman Empire, as severely as Christians were persecuted, it didn't work, and Christianity triumphed in the Roman Empire. In communist China, as severely as Christians were persecuted, and as many of them as were killed, it didn't work. And now there's reliable reports there are as many as 100 million believers in China. A remarkable thing. So there are glorious examples of persecution not working that we can tell with our human eye. But there are times when at least to our vision, in the short term, it works. I guess I'm just saying that we need to be cautious about not being prepared for persecution. Because when it comes, if it is to come against believers, uh, we need to be ready for it so that it does not, even in the short term, work against us. And here's my final of the 10 myths regarding persecution. Um, myth number 10, persecution is the worst thing that can happen to Christians. Listen, that's a myth. <laughs> it's not true. Persecution is not the worst thing that can happen to Christians. And we take great comfort in that truth. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is Lord. And there are aspects of his glory that will only shine forth in a season of persecution against believers. Persecution also does have a purifying influence on the church. Now, we don't say this lightly. That purification that happens during persecution, it happens through a lot of pain. And if anybody willingly seeks out that kind of pain, you, you probably got something loose in your head. But we don't rejoice in the pain. We don't seek it out. Yet we do rejoice that God does not allow that pain to be useless. But he has a divine purpose for it. And part of that purpose is to purify the church. You know, what we simply do is we join Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings. That's what we simply do. Do you remember what it says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10? Paul, at this beautiful summit peak of expression in Philippians, there, there's actually several summits in Philippians, but here's one of them. Paul renounces all of his old religiosity, and then he cries out concerning Jesus. Again, this is Philippians 3.10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, every true Christian, 
They want to know Jesus. And that was the first phrase that Paul used there in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. And we all say with Paul, amen, I want to know Jesus. And I believe that almost every true Christian wants to know the power of his resurrection. So we say amen with Paul when he says that I may know him, amen, that I may know the power of his resurrection, amen. But then when he mentions the third thing, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, there, there's not many Christians who follow him. We may face persecution and suffering, but I want you to know this, that God will work a beautiful and powerful purpose in it if we cling to him and hold fast the faith. Dear believing brother or sister, I want you to be prepared for worse persecution that may come in months or years in the future, in the Western world. I'm not guaranteeing that it will come, not by any means, but we should be ready, should we not? And it begins with us drawing as close as we can to Jesus Christ right here, right now, putting away our trust in everything else and putting our trust solely on Jesus. That's a great first step in being ready for persecution. So again, brothers, sisters, I just want you to know that uh, I think God is using this whole present COVID-19 season to warn us, to teach us, to teach us about loving one another, to teach us about respecting each other in the body of Christ, but also very definitely to warn us about what may be coming down the lane and to be ready for it. I, I hope that I can be ready. God helping me, I will be. And I pray that you will be also. God bless you. have been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.